Good morning, everybody. Before I, I start this morning, I just want to give you a quick news flash, a reminder. We're two weeks away from Christmas. So, you know, if you weren't stressed before I said that, well, you can thank me later for reminding you of that fact. We're two weeks out from Christmas. So, this is a stressful season. This is a season of busyness. Um, I can't believe how busy schedules get this time of year. It seems like everything has to be jammed into December. Do you understand that with your family calendars and things like that? And sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in what's going on and all the pressure and the stress. So I wanted to share this story, this joke slash story with you this morning to get us started. We're going to talk about peace. What does peace look like? Even though joy is down here, peace is our word for the, the day. I can't find anything organically wrong with you, the doctor said. You probably have some business or social problem that you should talk over with a good counselor. As you know, many illnesses come from worry. A case very similar to yours came to me only a few weeks ago. The man had a $5,000 note due and he couldn't pay it. Because of his money problem, he had worried himself into a state of nervous exhaustion. And did you cure him? asked the patient. Yes, said the doctor. I told him just to stop worrying that life was too short to make himself sick over a scrap of paper. Now he's back to normal. He stopped worrying entirely. Good news. I know, the patient, the patient said sadly. I'm the one he owes the $5,000 to. <laughs> Mark Twain once said, from the cradle to the grave... A man never does a single thing which has any first and foremost object save one, and that is to secure peace of mind for himself. I think Mark Twain was pretty accurate in that statement. Peace, peace of mind, all those types of things are what we want to talk about today in this Advent Sunday. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 2. So we're going to spend most of our time there, but as you turn to Luke 2... Put your finger in Micah 5 um, also because we're going to be referring to that passage that Jeff Weiss read earlier. The promise of the ruler coming forth out of Bethlehem. You know, I saw on my Comcast page, Xfinity page, it popped up a story of 13 UN peacemakers who were killed over in Congo, Africa. And as I read the story, it talked about since the UN has been in that country since 99, over 300 peacemakers have been killed by rebels uh, there in Congo. And I thought, it's a story of where we are today. I think those that strive for peace, that want to see peace in this world, where is it? And as we come into Advent season, the question for us is, how do we find peace and how do we bring peace to those around us? How do we become instruments of God's peace in people's lives? And I think a lot of the answer to that is found in the Christmas story as we celebrate this time of year. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 in Luke 2 to begin. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. This is how the story started. So we start off with the town. Why Bethlehem? It seems to be a little bit of an unlikely place. Not very significant. After all, Jerusalem is where all the excitement is. All the main things are going on in Jerusalem. So why Bethlehem? The answer to that question goes back into Micah, and actually even earlier, but we'll talk about that. So with your finger in Micah, turn back to Micah, and we're going to look at that passage here. The prophecy given to the prophet. And it says this, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. That's Micah 5, 2 through 5a. He will be our peace. It's interesting that I put in the note taker that Bethlehem is a very unlikely city. And you have the unlikeliness of, of that small town up against the prophecy and the truth of a great ruler is going to come out of that place. An unlikely town, a great ruler. And look at what Micah 5 tells us about this great ruler. He's going to rule over Israel. His origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, commentaries are kind of divided on what that means specifically. Is that a reference to his Davidic lineage, that he's from the tribe of David? Or is that talking about his origins, he's, he's God from eternity past? Well, probably both, actually. It's a reference to the fact that this is something that's been in the plans for a long time, from of old, from ancient times. Look at verse 3 of Micah 5. This is a great little prophecy within a bigger prophecy. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Israelite, they're going to be abandoned. Now this was written by Micah around the same time as we read last week in Isaiah 7, when Ahaz was king, when uh, when his son uh, Hezekiah was on the throne prior to the Babylonian uh, captivity. So there's a prophecy that Israel is going to be taken captive and it's going to feel like they're abandoned. There's going to be a period of captivity. They will return, but then there's a 400 silent year period there. So it feels like Israel's being abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. The prophecy there, of course, is Mary bearing Jesus, the Son of God. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the set time was fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. There's a specific time where a son's going to be sent. And that son is Jesus, born of a virgin. And then it finishes and it says, The rest of His brothers return to join the Israelites. What is that talking about? The rest of his brothers, a reference there to the son. Those associated with the son, those who are believers. And there's a, in the in book of Acts, chapter 2, 
Peter is preaching a message uh, during the time of the Pentecost there. And he's preaching to all those who had gathered and the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And this is what he says in Acts 2, 38-39. He says, repent, be baptized in the name of, of the Lord. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What Peter's doing there is saying, look, times are changing here. Not only Israel is saved, but this is all people. God is calling all people to himself. Um, so this prophecy back in Micah was foretelling the truth of that, where people would come to God in large numbers. It also talks about, in verse 4 of Micah 5, it says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He's a great shepherd. They will live securely. There's peace. There's security in his reign. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This is going to be a universal thing. He's going to be a powerful ruler, and his, his reign will go out to the ends of the earth. And I love how it ends there in verse 5. It's a person. He. He will be our peace. This is obviously a promise of who Jesus is. So why this unlikely city? Well, the answer to that is because it was a promise made to David, a promise that his kingdom would never end. And if you go back into the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, there's a heartache there because the Lord said to David, you're not going to be the one to build the temple. I know you want to, and it's in your heart and you desire in chapter 7, but guess what? Here's my promise to you. And he says to him in verse 16, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will never end. This is promise of this eternal lineage, lineage from David moving forward. So why this unlikely city? Because it was the town of David. It was the promise of God that a great ruler is going to come out of that city. Christ was in the line of David. There's three kind of links with David in this text. One is it's it's called the city of David, but the fact that David was also a ruler, just as the ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. And the fact that this person that was prophesied in Micah 5.2 is going to be this great shepherd. David was a great shepherd, but in Psalm it talks about the Lord making him the shepherd of his people, the shepherd of Israel. And so there's a reference there to Christ and tying him in with the person of David. So unlikely city, but also, and I, this is my word in your note taker, um, unpeaceful. I don't even know if that's a word, but it, you understand where I'm going with that. Bethlehem, of all places, historically, was simply not a peaceful place. And I found this little history lesson to kind of give you an idea of what Bethlehem's been like from the time of Christ to today, and here it is. It says, over the years, Bethlehem has not seen much peace. Think of what happened when in the first two years after Jesus' birth, when the wise men left, Herod ordered the slaughter of all the boys two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. No peace, only weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. No peace either in the centuries that followed. In the second century, the Romans recaptured the city during a Jewish revolt, expelled Jewish residents. In the sixth century, Bethlehem was sacked, its walls and church destroyed during the Samaritan revolt. In the seventh century, the Persian Empire captured it. Soon afterwards, the Islamic caliphates took control of it. 
In the 11th century, the Crusaders captured it. So there was the ba that back and forth between the Muslims and the, and the Crusaders. It, it was all a part of that. Again, in the 13th century, exchanged hands between the Crusaders and then back to the Muslims. The Ottoman Empire took control in the 16th century. Egypt briefly ruled it in the 1830s. Then the Ottoman rule returned from 1841 until World War I. After World War I, Bethlehem was under British mandate. Jordan captured it in the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. You're getting the picture here. It's a constant battle there. There's fighting going on. There is no peace. Israel captured it in the Six-Day War of 1967. In 1995, Israel withdrew its troops, and Bethlehem came under the control of the Palestinian National Authority of the West Bank. And even at the beginning of our current dec decade, Bethlehem was again overturned by violence in the Second Palestinian War. Still no peace. If you go to Bethlehem today, if you can get into Bethlehem, it's not a town of peace today. So, so what was going on? Well, maybe our definition of peace needs to be refigured. Maybe we're thinking of peace in the wrong sense. And in a Jewish mind, their word for peace is shalom. For a Jew, this was not that there was no war. It was not an absence of war and conflict. But it was this idea of wholeness, completeness, mind, body, and estate. This idea that all is as it should be. In the Jewish mind, shalom meant the end of injustice. Brokenness would be set right and healed. The reality of this word was wrapped up in a person called the Messiah. And Isaiah 9-6 tells us of this person, this Messiah. It says, unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Jewish mind, that's who they were looking for in their Messiah, that Prince of Peace to come. Now, not only was the city unusual, which it was, but the audience, look at verses 8 through 10. Who did the angel announce the coming of this Messiah to? It's an interesting audience also, verses 8 through 10. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. There were shepherds. Now, we read that story, and it kind of just passes over our heads, but in, the, in that day, in that culture, the idea of shepherds having any important thing to say would be unheard of. The reality is they were despised. They were looked down upon in their culture. Number one, they lived outside with the sheep. They were dirty they were unkempt. They were just like in our culture, maybe homeless. They were ritually unclean. They would birth newborns. They would deal with dead animals. So they were ritually unclean in that culture. And then finally, because they worked 24-7 caring for sheep, they were unable to attend Sabbath. They were unable to participate in, in the Jewish festivals and all of the things associated with following God. And so in the religious Jewish culture of the day, shepherds were pretty low on the totem pole. I don't know if you could go much lower. Maybe tax collector would be a step below that. But shepherds were down there. Let's just put it that way. They were despised. So why were they the first missionaries? Why were they the ones who were given the message first? Well, God has a liking for shepherds. Some of the great 
people in the Old Testament were shepherds. Moses spent 40 years of his life shepherding sheep out in Midian. Abraham, David, God is referred to as the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. So it's an image. It's maybe used the most of God of any other image in all of the Bible. The idea of being a shepherd. He liked that. God liked that. He was fond of them. God often reaches out to the less fortunate and downtrodden. Will people look down on them? God held them in high esteem. And as I thought about that, that's the reality of the gospel. The fact that everyone was welcome at the manger. Everyone. Everyone's welcome at the throne of grace. That's the way God sees the world, and that's the way it worked here in the Christmas story. But I think beyond that, and maybe along with that, these shepherds looked after some very special sheep. And history tells us that the area around Bethlehem was the area where the sheep used in the temple sacrifices were raised and kept. It's very possible that they were caring for those sheep that were used for the sacrifice for sins. Could it be more appropriate that the same shepherds that looked after the temple sacrifices were among the first to gaze upon the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world? So there was something going on there. Look at verse 10, the angel's message. Number one, and probably most important, don't be afraid. This is shocking. They're out in the dark. It's quiet. They're not around people a lot. They're by themselves. They thought, all of a sudden, there's this bright light, the glory of the Lord shown around about them. Don't be afraid. First words out of the angel's mouth. And then look what the angel says next. And this is the gospel. Number one, I bring you good news. That's evangelium. That's the, that's the gospel. Good news. I bring you good news, which is going to cause great joy for all people. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's a universal appeal. It's good news. It's going to cause great joy that's the message that they heard from the angel. Don't be afraid, but this is the good news. This is the gospel. I want you to hear this. Look what he says about the baby in verse, verses 11 and 12. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. There's three titles that are given to this baby. Number one, he is the Savior. Jesus, the very name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yeshua, the same as Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the same name. The one who will save his people from their sins, he will have power to forgive sins. So he's going to be the Savior. But he's also going to be more than that. He's going to be Messiah in the NIV or Christ in some of the other translations. It's the same word. He is the promised one. He is the one who fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies. He is the long-awaited one who is coming. He is the anointed one. That's what Messiah literally means. He's the Savior. He's this Messiah that you've been waiting for, but he's Lord. That's a deity word. That's a word that says he is not only a person, a human being, but he is God. He is this ruler who is coming that Micah 5 spoke of. He is mighty God, everlasting Father. Look at the chorus now that happens. And it's interesting, it takes one angel to bring the news, but it takes a host, an army of them to respond to the news. Look at what it says here in verses 13 and 14. Suddenly this great company now 
of the heavenly hosts appear with the angel. Okay, so if they were afraid a little bit before with the one angel, host, heavenly. I mean, you can just imagine being in that situation. And this is their message that they all sang together, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. God's purpose is not to give you peace apart from himself. God's purpose in this is to give you peace by being the most glory, glorified person in your life. That's what they're saying to them. It starts with understanding that we give glory to God in the highest. That's what all of this is about. So understand that first. And the angels wanted to make sure they understood that. But it continues. Peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Now, in the King James Version, it does a little bit of a disservice, you could argue, and it says in the King James, it's peace and goodwill to men. Not a bad translation, but I think a better translation is the NIV, New American, and others that bring in this idea that peace upon whom his favor rests or with whom he is pleased in the New American Standard and others. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it starts with peace with God is first and foremost. That's where peace has to start in our life. It has to start with our relationship with him. He's bringing this out. This is our positional peace. This is the peace that doesn't change. It's settled. Once we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. It is a for sure settled issue. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does peace with God come from? It comes through Jesus Christ. How can we be right with God? It's being justified by faith through Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. I like the passage in Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 14, which tells us this. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. That's speaking to us Gentiles. Things were not looking good without Christ. But look what it says. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. That's Micah 5.5. 5. He is our peace. Who has made the two groups one, he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Dwight Moody has a quote. He says, a great many people are trying to make peace, but there's alre- that's already been done. God has not left it up to us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. That's peace with God. Please, the invitation is there. Enter into that peace and enjoy that peace with God. It's there. It's already been provided through the blood of Jesus Christ. So enter into it. So that's peace with God, but it doesn't end there. There's another kind of peace, and it's different. These next two are different than circumstantial peace, and I want to kind of point that out. I think, have you ever had that moment where you just kind of step back in life and go, wow, everything is good, and you have those brief moments in your life, right, where you just praise God, and you just say everything looks good right now. Well, Five minutes later, it's different, right? I think, uh, how many of you enjoy the movie The Christmas Story? Okay. It's my favorite 
I admit, I look forward to watching it every year, but there's a scene at the very end of the, of the movie. Put yourself, they're at the tree, the Christmas tree. The red rifle, you know, the BB gun has been unwrapped. The whole point of the movie has been reached. He's excited about the BB gun. They're there around the Christmas tree. And then it pans away from the house, and you see the leg lamp in the window, right? And it's panning away from the house. The snow is falling. It's a peaceful Christmas day. And it said, the narrator says, all was well with the world. That's the circumstantial piece. Life is good. Those aren't, that's not the piece that it, I'm talking about here in the note taker, but that's, that's good. And there are moments where life is good. But our peace needs to go deeper than that. And so peace with God, peace with ourselves. I call this experiential peace or inner peace. You can look at it two ways. Am I at peace with myself? Is there peace in my soul? Um, you know, we can have peace with God and still struggle here, the inner peace. The passage that speaks of that, and Joe, if you want to shoot that up there on the PowerPoint slide, this is Philippians 4, 4 through 7. It is, to me, it's the passage that speaks of this. And in this passage, there's four commands and one promise or result. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Command number one, rejoice. Command number two, let your gentleness be evident to all. Be gentle. Be gentle to people. Some of the words that are used in other translate gentle spirit, New American, moderation, King James, reasonableness, the ESV. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And then there's a, the Lord is near. Remember last week, God with us, Emmanuel? The Lord is near. And that can be true in two ways. And commentators go back and forth, and I really think it's both. The Lord is near in space to us. He's near. He's close. But the Lord is near in time, his coming. Scripture speaks to that too. He can come any time, right? The Lord is near. and Scripture has a lot to say. So the Lord is near. There's a promise there and a reminder. Emmanuel, and he's coming soon. Be ready. The Lord is near. Third command, do not be anxious about anything. Maybe one of the most difficult commands in all Scripture to obey, is it not? Really? Don't be anxious about anything? I find that difficult. <laughs> okay, but here's, here's how you do this. But a better option in everything, in every situation, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, there's three clauses there that lead up to the command to present your request to God. Instead of worrying, stressing out, bring your request to God, and there's three clauses that kind of lead up to that. Okay, number one, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, bring your request to God. How do you do, instead of worrying, instead of stressing out, rejoice, be gentle in the situation, don't worry about it, instead bring it to God. And then there's a promise, there's the result that's promised to us, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your hearts, you won't be searching after things that you don't need. Your mind, you won't be dwelling and thinking about things where you shouldn't be thinking about. Your mind will be stayed on him. There's a great verse in Isaiah that talks about that very truth, and it says, 
You'll keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. When our trust, when our minds, when our hope are placed in the Lord, there's inner peace that comes in that. So we have peace with God. We have peace, inner peace, through bringing them these requests to him in prayer, trusting him. It doesn't end there, though. We need peace with other people, right? We need peace. In re- this is relationship peace. Now, this is maybe the most complicated of all three, right? So Christmas, extended family gigs, peace, right? <laughs> Relationships, all of that comes into play. There's a great verse in Romans 12 uh, that I think is so good, and I'm glad that Paul put this in Romans for us to think about. He gives us two clauses in this. He says, if it is possible, number two, as far as it depends on you, so those, then he says, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So there's times where it's not possible. There's times where it clearly doesn't depend on you. Maybe it's out of your control, and that's what he's saying. You can't control relationship. You can't control peace in relationship. You simply can't. Now, you can do things. You can go up and talk. You can seek, and the heart of reconciliation is important here, but the reality, at the end of the day, it really doesn't fully depend on you. And so this one comes and goes. Our peace with God is a fixed. It's a positional truth. Our inner peace comes and goes. Our peace with other comes and goes, right? But in all of these things, we trust God as we move forward. This morning, the question downstairs in the Advent was, how have you experienced God's peace in your life? And I collected some of those, and I wanted to read them. And they were beautiful expressions, I think, of how people have seen God's peace in their lives. So I just wanted to read some of these. In the past year, specifically, I've experienced peace beyond my comprehension as I've seen God provide for my family. He's calmed my fears. He's replaced them with faith. He's taken my worries, given me peace. From giving us a church home and family to blessing our lives with a promise of a baby on the way. Uh-oh, I've kind of gave him some news out there. Anyway, God has given peace. He is good, and I can always trust him. He blesses when we are undeserving, and he provides when I can't see how he does it. God's goodness to me has been the embodiment of peace. When God showed me my sin, and I was terrified of what I was and the punishment I deserved, I called on Jesus. He took my fear, he gave me peace. I long to see my Lord, the Prince of Peace. I'm thankful for the sure hope that he is in control and he will return. To me, it's the peace of God that makes the peace of believers so wonderful. Jesus' death in our place gives me that assurance I'm no longer God's enemy, instead I'm God's friend. That makes all the difference as I face life every day. Peace unto you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. This is my memory translation of John 14, 27. I do that often too, so I understand. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. May times, even today, I become fearful about the future, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, peace, question mark, and a sound mind. That's my memory of 2 Timothy 1, 7. Good. 
I have learned much about the truth of Christianity in recent years as this increased knowledge has helped me accept the peace of God which passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. When trials come, pray, Philippians 4. Difficulties are speed bumps and faith builders, not faith breakers. God's peace comes when I pray continually and give my struggles to God. I know this is true as in a period of 12 months I fought cancer, I buried my dad, and I moved a child out of state. The knowledge that God is in control and loves me and has my best interest in me fills me with peace. His faithfulness shown in his word, his creation and his work in my life fills me with peace. God's peace guards my heart from life's anxieties. I know that the Prince of Peace is in control when things seem out of control. I know that I can bring everything to him and leave it in his hands. When God is caring for me, I need not fear. And then, although I did not give you whose names these were, this one will become obvious. When one is in another country and totally dependent on others for nearly everything, God steps in and gives peace and an ability to trust him to provide all your needs for physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, if that wasn't enough hint, the word Portugal appears on here. <laughs> Welcome back, Pat, by the way. It's good to see you back with us today from Portugal. And then she has down below Portugal, enjoy fellowship, allow God, care for children, eat Peo, am I close on that? Oh, okay, okay, well. And then she has cheese soup down there with a bowl, kind of a picture of that. How do you see God's peace in your life? These are some beautifully written examples from your own lives. Thank you for sharing those. I just wanna end with this. Look at the response of these shepherds in verses 15 to 20. And this should be our response. This is our application today. I'll just kinda end with this. Verse 15 to 20, when the angels had left them, gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go back to shepherding. No. <laughs> let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondered them in her heart. Interesting, right in the middle of this. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So what are we supposed to do with the good news at Christmas? Number one, check it out. Respond to the gospel. The shepherds didn't just go, oh, that was interesting. No, they went to see. The invitation to the gospel is check it out. Check out Jesus for yourself. Put your faith. It's, step, it's a step of faith of going and actually believing what they had heard. But it didn't end there, it says they spread the word. They spread the word concerning what, they, what had been told them. All were amazed at what they heard from the shepherds. This is good news we should be telling other people about the Christmas story in our own lives. Let's be sharing that this season. I love verse 19. I think in the middle of all the joy, the celebration, the exuberance, there was this pondering, this quiet, taking it all in, thinking about it. I wanna encourage you during Christmas to take a few moments in all the craziness to think about who Jesus is in your life, to think about what the peace of God means in your life, to think about what God with us means. Ponder, treasure those things in your heart. 
And then finally, they returned back to the field. They had to get back to work. Don't you hate that? You've had this wonderful trip, this wonderful experience, but you've got to earn the paycheck. So they go back, but it says they returned glorifying and praising God. This is a season to be about that, to glorify and praise Him. So I want to encourage you to take the example of the shepherds into your life and be about these things as we respond to the good news of what the Christmas story really means in our life.